That's chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi, and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters. With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And the pitch swung on. Lined up the middle. Base hit center field. Escobar trots home from third to score. And that will close the books on Nola. Charged with all three runs in the inning. It's now the Nationals six and the Phillies nothing. And still nobody out of the inning. And Thompson behind McCutcheon, two and one. The kick, the pitch. Swinging a line drive, hammer to the left center gap. No one's going to get this one. Two runs score. Rio Muto trying to score. Escobar's relay. The slide is in there. And three runs score on the double for Andrew McCutcheon. Now the set and the pitch. Breaking ball and hot on the ground. A second. It goes right through Garcia into right field. Two runs are going to score on the play. And the game will be tied. Over to third goes Barchard. Kennedy delivers, swing and a high fly ball, center field deep, playable though for Herrera, to his left, shy of the track, he makes the catch, and the Phillies storm out of the dugout here at Nationals Park, where they have won nine out of ten games played between the two teams this year, and uh, this one especially satisfying for them, they come back from a 6 nothing deficit, and beat the Nationals by a run, and pull to within a game and a half of first place Atlanta. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, September 3rd, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, Thursday was a beautiful day, weather-wise, anyway. But from a weather perspective, it was one of the most beautiful days of the summer in the nation's capital. And Game 3 for the Nationals against the Phillies at Nationals Park started off in such a beautiful way. Juan Soto homered. Lane Thomas homered. The secret weapon, Paolo Espino, was doing secret weapon, Paolo Espino-type things as the Nats Chat podcast karma was in full effect. And then the rest of the game happened, and the Nationals ended up blowing a 6 nothing six-inning lead, 7-6 the final. Nats get swept by the Phillies over this three-game series. Nats conclude a 6-13 and season against the Phillies. And incredibly, six of the Nats' 13 losses to the Phillies feature the Nats blowing a lead of at least three runs. The Phillies, with those six wins, tie for the most such wins by a team against another team in a season 
in the modern era, which is since 1900. Mark, the Nats, thankfully, are done with the Phillies this season. I think we are all grateful for that. Al, I hate to break it to you, but today was the seventh. They broke the record. Seven losses. Oh, it was. Seven losses to the Phillies this year in which they led by three or more runs. They tied it the other night. This was number seven. And it was fitting the way that it happened, of course, because we were talking before we started recording. It's six nothing after five. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, this game is far from over. And I thought, okay, if Paolo Espino can get through the sixth clean, then they've got a chance. But if he can't, this could get ugly really quick because we already know that the bullpen is, you know, short on experienced arms. And on top of that, they're without Kyle Finnegan, who's on paternity leave. And it was a lot to ask of that group to get the job done. And so to me, crazily enough, I thought the key moment of the game was the little Bryce Harper dribbler down the third baseline that nobody was home for just because they're not playing him to hit over there. Herrera held on at first. Espino the set, the one-two pitch. Jammed him, fastball, slow roller, third base side. It's going to be a hit. Escobar ranges over to the third baseman's position, which was empty. Picks it up, throws to second, but Herrera was standing on the bag, and that is a tough break for Paolo Espino. He jammed Harper. That ended Paolo's day. That forced Tim Bogart to go to the bullpen. If somehow that play is made, I almost feel like that could have changed the entire karma. Maybe Paolo gets through the sixth. Maybe somehow they cobbled together the last three innings. That one little dribbler, Paolo did his job. He jammed him. He got Harper essentially out three times, and it still wasn't enough. So when that one went through, I kind of started thinking, oh, no, here we go. This could get bad. It's amazing how like every one of these Nats-Phillies games this season seemingly followed the same script of the Nationals would lead early. The first half of the game would move at a pretty good pace, and then the rest of the game takes forever, features a Phillies comeback, and the Nationals ultimately end up losing. This was a bad season against a Phillies team that, you know, maybe is okay, but really had its way with the Nationals in a lot of ways. I mean, you think about the season Bryce Harper had against the Nats, Andrew McCutcheon had against the Nats, Brad Miller had against the Nats. I know the Nats haven't exactly set the world on fire this year, but this really ended up being a bad matchup for the Nationals this season in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And I think like crazy as it sounds, I don't think they're that far behind them. Just all things being you know, considered equal, certainly before the sell-off, I didn't think they were much worse than them. And, and even at the moment, I don't necessarily feel that. If the Nats had you know, a halfway experienced and competent bullpen, I think the outcomes of these games are going to be completely different. I had never been sold on the Phillies pitching staff all year. Yeah, they've got a good lineup. But as we see, you know, it can be tamed. Palo shut him out for five innings until things fell apart from the sixth and beyond. I know the Phillies are right in the thick of the race now behind the Braves. But boy, did they just feast on the Nats and take advantage of the Nats. And I still have to believe that once the Phillies start facing some tougher competition, they will return to being, you know, roughly a 500 team and that the Braves will be in better shape and end up winning the division. Three hours and 52 minutes, your game time for Thursday afternoon. Rob Manfred, call your office. But yeah, the Nationals bullpen was terrible in this game on Thursday. We'll get to that in a moment. But with our continued focus on the potential building blocks and that which truly matters versus that which really doesn't matter that much as the Nationals play out the string of this season, hard to ignore what went down with Luis Garcia in what ended up being a four-run Phillies eighth inning. Two big defensive mistakes for Luis. The biggest of the bunch, him simply whiffing on a hard-hit, one-out bases-loaded grounder off the bat of pinch hitter Nick Maton on a play on which two runs scored to tie the game at six. And 
This was a unique thing in that, you know, sometimes you'll see a fielder whiff on a play for whatever reason. This was basically Garcia was turning for the feed to second base before he ever caught the baseball on a grounder that really could have led to an inning-ending double play. That was a painful moment. You know that Luis was eating himself up for that after that. And perhaps because of that, you had another defensive mistake. Now the set of the pitch. Swing a ground ball, chop right side. Garcia has this one. He looked home, goes to second, out there, throw to first. Not in time. That's another mental mistake. That's a double play ball, and he looked at home and cost himself the double play. Because the double play ends the inning. Yep. And he had it. Maybe one had nothing to do with the other. I'm not a mind reader, but not long after that initial boo-boo, another boo-boo came. Garcia with runners at the corners, double clutching on an Odubel Herrera grounder, resulting in a run-scoring force out at second base when Garcia either had time to throw home to prevent the go-ahead run from scoring, or maybe if he gets off a quicker throw to second, you maybe get the double play there. Hard to say. I thought he at least could have thrown home. You know, those were not two necessarily easy plays, but obviously second base, premium defensive position. Garcia is you no know, not exactly uh, setting the world on fire with his bat right now, so the defense has got to be the thing for him. And at times he's made the spectacular play, but he's also had trouble with the routine play, and we saw this on multiple occasions in one inning on Thursday, and that inning ended up being a big inning. Yeah, look, this is a 21-year-old playing every day right now in the big leagues and being told, go out there and get the job done. Show us what you can do. And in that moment, to me, you know, it's easy for me to say, I'm sitting high up atop the stadium, but, you know, I've seen enough to have a sense of these things. It felt like the moments were too big for him. They let him get too big for them. The first one, he sat back, like you said, it was sort of just like, assuming he was going to catch the ball and start the double play instead of aggressively going after that. They've been talking about that, working with him, him and Carter Keboom, for that matter, and being more aggressive in that on a ground ball, you always want to have your feet moving. You don't want to get flat-footed and wait for the ball to come to you. Go get it. And so that first one was that. And I have a hard time believing that it wasn't still in his mind. I mean, we're talking minutes later, if, if that, it was the next batter, when he froze on the Herrera ball and I don't know if he had a play at the plate, but to me, unless the infield's playing in and you're a middle infielder in that situation, first and third, one out, a tie game late, if the ball's hit to you and it's sharply hit enough, the automatic play is go for two. Unless they've told you, okay, you're playing in and you're trying to get a play at the plate, and I don't believe he was playing in on it, it is turn two. And so his very first thought needs to be go to second. If you can't turn it in time, so be it. But by pausing for that split second and looking at the plate and thinking about it before reacting and making the throw to second, he killed any chance of that happening. And so there are the two tying runs and the go-ahead run. As bad as the bullpen was, if Luis Garcia makes either of those plays, the Nats either win the game or at least it's still tied going late. And because of those mistakes, it cost them. Yeah. And all you can hope is that that's an experience from which Garcia learns because the age is a thing, right? Age 21 season, like you said, he is so young, and so you don't want to sit here and just kill the guy for this. But those were two big spots, and you know if the Nats are in contention, I mean, this is a huge issue, what happens in that 4-1 Phillies eighth inning. He doesn't come through defensively, but the bullpen, to me, I mean, that's really the culprit in this game. I mean, this bullpen in this game was atrocious. All seven of the Phillies' runs scored with Nats relievers pitching. Now, not all seven runs were charged to Phillies relievers, but every single run scores with a Nats reliever on the mound. We know the deal with the bullpen by now. It wasn't very good before the sell-off. It's been, in a lot of ways, worse since the sell-off, although there have been some games and stretches in which the bullpen's done all right. But 
There's just a lot of inexperience, a lot of improving guys, a lot of guys learning on the fly. We're learning all kinds of names with the Nationals bullpen this season. Gabe Klobositz on Thursday, Alberto Baldonado. I mean, some of these names sound made up. You know, it sounds like something you would have come up with as a kid when you're having an imaginary friend or something. But no, these are real people. These are real Nats relievers. And some guys did well on Thursday, but not all of them did well on Thursday. Mason Thompson who is so Jekyll and Hyde, I feel like. Thompson at times looks great, and Thompson at times just does not look good. He did not look good in this game on Thursday. Struggled in what was a three-run Philly six, faced three batters, got nobody out. Sam Clay did put out the fire in that top of the sixth inning, so that was good. Came into the game, runners on first and second, one out, got two outs on four pitches. The aforementioned Alberto Baldonado made his major league debut in the top of the seventh. He did well. Let's give him credit. This was a nice major league debut through a scoreless top of the seven, two strikeouts, including a six-pick strikeout of Bryce Harper for the third out. With a three-ball, two-strike count. See if he challenges him here with the fastball up by three runs. Here's the pitch. Fastball swing and a miss at 96. Blew him away. Alberto Baldonado in his big league debut strikes out a pair. Then we were back to somebody struggling. Patrick Murphy was not good and what ended up being a four-run Phillies eighth. He faced four batters, got just one out, ultimately was charged with three runs, two earned. Andres Machado had issues in that Phillies four-run eighth inning, was only charged with an unearned run, but all four runs scored with him pitching. He began his appearance by issuing a one-out seven-pitch walk of Rafael Marchand, who was not a great hitter and who was down 0-2, and yet still Machado ended up walking the guy. And then Austin Voth did look good, perfect top of the ninth with two strikeouts. But, you know, it's that classic thing, Mark, of you use six relievers in a game. They're not all going to have it. And in this game, it kind of played out in exactly that way. Three were good, three were not good, and that ended up costing the Nats. Yeah, and that's why I said I thought the sixth inning was going to be the key. If you had to go to the bullpen already in the sixth, that means you're going to be using probably four or more relievers to get through this game. So I'm not putting this on Paolo Espino because he did a good job, but if he could have just somehow gotten through the sixth, I think it would have set up a lot better, you know, for them as after that. But let's start with Mason Thompson. I mean, the walks, that's the killer. You walk the first hitter on five pitches to load the bases for Andrew McCutcheon, who we know is a Nats killer. And McCutcheon ahead in the count, of course, three run double to the gap. And then how do you follow that up? with a four-pitch walk to Brad Miller. So Thompson ends up throwing 13 pitches, three of them for strikes. We talk so much about, you know, starters in particular, but it's especially true with relievers. If you don't have it, if you don't have your good stuff, you don't have your command of your fastball, whatever it is, you got to have something else, some other way to try to get the job done. And what we're seeing with him is that if he doesn't have it, especially with that sinker that he throws, there isn't another way to go about it. And so that was, to me, the most painful sequence right there. But Machado also walked the first batter he faced. I feel like all year long, no matter who it's been, veterans or rookies, we're having the same conversation about relievers coming in and walking the first batter they face. But let's go one bright spot here, and that is your boy, Antonio Baldonado, who I know you thought it might be made up, but let me tell you, Al, he is real, and today he was spectacular. <laughs> Especially the Bryce Harper at bat. I loved that at bat. You're thinking 28-year-old rookies facing, you know, maybe the best hitter on the planet at the moment in Harper, although Juan Soto's got a good case for that as well. And what did he do? He threw him five straight sliders. Four of them in a row were in the dirt and then had the uh, courage, the onions, to throw him a high fastball and got him 96 miles an hour up in the zone. I was impressed. I mean, look, it's one outing. Who knows what this guy is? 28, he's been around the block for a while, finally in the big leagues. But 
in that one moment, I really liked the way he went after Bryce Harper. It worked out. And let's find out. We'll see more of him, I'm sure, here in the coming days. Do you remember Garbage Pail Kids, those cards yeah. from like the 80s and 90s? Of course. Alberto Baldonado sounds like a Garbage Pail Kids version of Candy Maldonado. You know what I mean? Like, again, <laughs> it sounds made up. It doesn't sound real. It sounds like something you come up with. But no, that's a real person. He pitched for the Nationals on Thursday, and he looked good. He looked good. So we give him credit for that. Did a nice job. Candy Maldonado, good hitter. Yes, he was a very good hitter. He was a very good hitter. You can always email the Nat Chat Podcast, natchatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from John Walker. He says, since the July 26 game in which the Nats blew a 4-0 lead to lose to the Phillies, parentheses, naturally, the Nats have lost games in which they lead 1-0, 2-0, a couple, 3-0, a couple, 4-0, 6-0, 7-0, and 8-0. Just thought you and the guys might find that another interesting sign of haplessness. I'm betting they complete the sequence and blow a 5-0 lead before the season ends. Yeah, the Nationals are uh, checking every box this year when it comes to blown leads. It's another sign of a bullpen that, again, wasn't great before the sell-off. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you have to say it's worse since the sell-off, although there are some bright spots that we can sort of latch on to as these games go on. And by the way, they're real and they're spectacular. (laughs) Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pitch to Nola's a fastball swung on and missed. That will retire the side. Strikeout number five for Espino, who has his fourth 1-2-3 inning out of five pitch so far. It is a shame that the bullpen wasn't good. It is a shame that Luis Garcia had those defensive issues in the top of the eighth because our guy, the secret weapon, was good once again. A second consecutive start. Remember Paolo, who was so good earlier in this season, went through like a five or six week stretch in which he really wasn't that good, but he now has put together back-to-back starts in which he has done well. And Paolo in this 7-6 loss to the Phillies at Nats Park on Thursday afternoon. Final line of two runs in five into third innings, but both of those runs end up scoring with Andres Machado pitching. Paolo, another game in which he has strikeouts to walks in a nice way. Five strikeouts versus one walk. He only gave up four hits, all of which were singles. He threw 59 strikes versus 30 balls on 89 pitches. And Paolo Espino is the new Jason Marquis. Another single, another hit. Second consecutive outing in which he has a hit. The wind of the pitch. Swing by Espino and a line drive to left center field. That's going to fall in a base hit. Over to get it, Freddie Galvis. Paolo Espino will turn and hold with a leadoff single here at the bottom of the fifth inning. That's his third hit in 21 at-bats in the big leagues this year. It was Paolo who began the Nationals' three-run fifth inning with a leadoff single. So a good all-around game for our guy, the secret weapon, off his wonderful appearance on the Nats Chat podcast. Again, yeah. I mean, I was impressed because, again, this is a good lineup that he faced, and he has faced them. This is the fifth time this year he faced the Phillies. So they know him at this point. I know some of those were in relief, including his first career save, which we asked him about yesterday. But, I mean, I was impressed the way that he went after them. I mean, Harper and Real Muto alone, okay? He strikes out Harper on a curveball in the first inning, then gets him in a huge spot with the bases loaded in the third, gets him to ground out. And then, like I said, in the, in the sixth, I mean, he came in on him and got him, jammed him, and little roller to third just happened nobody was there. Struck out Real Muto twice, got McCutcheon twice on ground balls. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than uh, what Espino did. And so I, I like to see the fact that he can have success after having struggled, like you said, for a little while this summer, facing teams that he's faced a good amount of times. That, that would always be the fear with someone who doesn't have the stuff of a Max Scherzer or, or a healthy Steven Strasburg. So if he can still be effective against teams that know what to expect from him, I think that's a really good sign. And I thought that was an especially encouraging outing for him. He's not a high velo guy, as we all know, as he himself conceded in his chat with us. But how about this now? Paolo Espino this season, over 86 innings, which is, you know, a pretty sizable workload for a guy who was never supposed to pitch at the major league level, who had totaled 30 career major league innings prior to this season. 86 innings this season, 70 strikeouts versus 16 walks, you know? So it's like, okay, maybe the strikeout number isn't sky high, but that's a good-looking strikeouts-to-walks ratio. And again, with all of these relievers who we see come into games and issue walks, you know, have control problems, that this guy, for the most part, has been excellent when it comes to pounding the zone, attacking batters this season. It says a lot about him and that approach. And I know it's not as easy as, hey, just go out and throw strikes. Like, it's one thing to want to do that. It's another thing to actually go out and execute that. But he, by and large, has executed that this season. He certainly did it on Thursday. And uh, again, we salute our guy. He did a really good job. Yeah, and I think the key there is 
you know, he's confident enough in his stuff to throw it over the plate and still get outs when the stuff, as we said, is not as good as others. When you have these relievers who are throwing 98 miles an hour and don't trust it enough to throw it over the plate, like their stuff should play over the plate, whereas Paolo's stuff should be more susceptible. Now, he's not throwing it right over the heart of the plate. He's very good at working the corners, all the quadrants, getting guys to swing at curveballs that start in the zone and dart out of them. But if I'm a, a hard-throwing reliever on this team, I'm looking at Paolo Espino and saying, hang on, maybe I can learn something from him. I throw a lot harder than he does. I have much better stuff than he does. I just need to trust that I can get hitters out if I throw it in the vicinity of the strike zone and don't have to be perfect with every pitch. You can go a long way in this sport if you just don't walk hitters. It is amazing. There are very few pitchers who have bad numbers and don't walk anybody. Like, it's hard to get beat without giving up walks. Another email, natchatpodcast at gmail.com. Jim in Alexandria, Virginia. He says, fortunately, I was not much affected by Ida, but it kind of led me to this. Gray and Espino and pray for El Nino. So <laughs> like the famous baseball saying of spawn and sane and pray for rain. Gray and Espino and pray for El Nino. Uh, I don't know. We can maybe work with that, Jim. That's a nice try. We appreciate that. We've been getting a lot of emails here in the last few days. I think fans are uh, very riled up for a lot of different reasons. Bring it on. We'll take them. We'll, we'll, we'll take your, your complaints. Absolutely. Look, when these games take four hours, you got to kill time somehow. So send us some emails. So we're more than happy to take them. All right. Some bright spots for the Nationals in addition to Paolo uh, in this game on Thursday afternoon. Monster game for Juan Soto. Gets on base four times, three for four, two run homer, two run single, another single and a walk. Uh, the home run coming in that Nats three run third one, blasting a two out, two run shot to center field. Uh, Philly starter Aaron Nola for a 3 nothing Nats lead. By the way, the Nats doing a good job against Nola in this game. Now, Nola has not had a great season, but Aaron Nola in the game ends up allowing six runs in four innings. Nats get him out of the game after just the four innings. That Soto homer going a projected 412 feet per stat cast. He then, in the Nats' three-run fifth, has a bases-loaded two-run single through a drawn-in Phillies infield to right field for a 5 nothing Nats lead. Soto, in the bottom of the seventh, has a leadoff single and a stolen base. So your Juan Soto Major League leading on base percentage is up to 446. Your Juan Soto Major League leading walks total is up to 106. He's obviously had many big games this season, but this was the biggest one in a while. Gets on base four times, finishes with four runs batted in. Tremendous job by the best pure hitter in baseball. What I liked is he said, I think he's had a little bit of a revelation here recently. Obviously, he's not getting a lot to hit, not getting a lot of opportunities because teams are just pitching around him. But he said that he probably reached a point there where he would be up at the plate and just not be expecting anything good. And maybe he gets a little passive. And instead, what he realized is, oh, you know what? I am taking some pitches that are hittable or I'm not ready for them and reacting late. So he's going up there and no matter the situation, even if it calls for a pitch around, he said he's taking an aggressive approach and just be ready to hit because if he does get something over the plate, he wants to be ready for it and take advantage of it. And boy, did he do that in this game. And I mean, he's already done such a nice job of making the most of what few opportunities he gets. But if he is able to take it to another level and in this game, get three hits, I mean, how often has Soto in the last month or two even had the opportunity to get three hits in a game? Hardly ever. He was able to do that and draw the walk. One of the hits is a home run. I credit him so much because obviously he's so gifted and we'd all love to be in the position that he's in. But that's not a t an easy spot to hit. It just can't be easy to do that when you know 
that you're not getting many opportunities, that you're only going to get a couple of pitches a game to do anything with, and he's still making the most of them. What's interesting with Soto, though, is, okay, so you have the sell-off and you arrive at the conclusion, we all do, of, well, Juan Soto's not going to get anything to hit the rest of the season because the Nationals lineup is so depleted. And there's, of course, a lot of truth to that. But the Nationals have actually hit okay over these last few weeks. And the Nationals have guys who are hitting well. And when you look at these Nats lineups, Soto is now surrounded by guys who are actually hitting pretty well. You know, Lane Thomas in the leadoff spot. Alcides Escobar was back out there on Thursday. He's got the very good on-base percentage. And Josh Bell, behind Juan Soto, has another game in which he gets on base multiple times. Bell in this game on Thursday, two for five with a double and an RBI single. And that Nats three-run fifth, he has an RBI single up the middle for a 6 nothing Nats lead. The Nats would give up seven unanswered to conclude the game, lose 7-6. But Bell also bottom of the ninth, a one-out first pitch double. Josh Bell in the series goes five for 13 with two doubles, three singles, and two walks. And one of the things we've noted with Bell is, you know, he's been so much better since the end of April, and yet his numbers for the season have just, like, been painfully slow to get to, you know, a really good level. Well, here we are now. Josh Bell threw this series an OPS on the season of 798. He's about to cross into that 800 OPS territory, and it's about time, and he deserves it. He's done a good job these last few months. You know, it's taken a while, but he's gotten those numbers to some respectable spots. And he's been on a nice run here over these last few weeks, not necessarily hitting for a ton of power, but a lot of singles, getting on base. He's actually started to draw some walks, which is not something he was doing. To the extent that protection exists, I think we're seeing some of that with Bell batting behind Soto. Yeah, and maybe that is one reason why Juan did get a few more pitches to hit, and it wasn't a complete pitch-around situation for him here lately. What I like, you mentioned how he hasn't maybe hit for as much power, but you could actually argue that's a better thing because there was a stretch there, I don't know, about a month or so. He was hitting his homers, but not much else. Well, now he is getting those singles and doubles and drawing the walks. And so that's going to make him a more complete hitter. We know when Josh Bell gets a hold of one, he's going to hit it a long way. He's going to hit 25 to 30 homers almost no matter what the rest of the season looks like. It's those other at-bats. Can he turn those into singles and doubles? Can he draw walks when he doesn't get anything over the plate? So I, I think that's a good sign. And for as much anguish as there was about did the Nats have somebody capable of hitting cleanup behind Soto? I think in the end, we're going to say, yeah, that wasn't the problem. You know, there are things we can point to that were issues with this team and even with their lineup. But Juan Soto's protection, I don't really feel like that it's going to have been an issue at the end. I think Josh Bell, the path to get there may have been a little winding, but I think the end result, we're going to say, yeah, he is who they thought they were getting and he did what they needed him to do. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the season, when we rank what went wrong for the Nats, it's going to start with starting pitching. And that's going to be like the clear number one. And there's going to be a gap between that and whatever you have as number two. And, And it sounds funny saying that because there was that rut for so long in which the Nationals offense wasn't doing well. Remember, this was before the sell-off. It's so interesting to me how so many of the worst things we've seen from the Nats actually happened before the sell-off, not since the sell-off. But since that bad rut, the Nationals have actually been okay offensively. I mentioned Lane Thomas, another good game for him, two for five solo homer and a single. I mean, right now, that starting center field job, number one spot in the lineup, those are jobs that are his to have, presumably, maybe, possibly, right, for the rest of the season. And Lane Thomas hits his first home run as a Nat. It's interesting. He's done so well. He had not homered yet as a Nat. He homers on Thursday in that three-run third inning, a two-out full count solo shot to center field 
off Aaron Nola, despite having been down at 1.12, the homer going a projected 418 feet per stat cast. And this was interesting because Lane had had that deep fly out to center to begin the bottom of the first inning. He gets his just a few innings later. Then he has a uh, single on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats' three-run fifth inning. Lane Thomas, so far for the Nationals, a 300-400-500 guy. 314 batting average, 407 on base, 510 slugging. We keep waiting for him to cool off, and maybe eventually he will. But this is now a 59-plate appearance sample size for Lane Thomas with the Nats. He continues to rake. He's done a really good job. 300, 400, 500. That's Juan Soto and Bryce Harper territory. That's right. Should we put him in the same category? Uh, not yet. Maybe soon. Well, I'll tell you what. You mentioned the first inning fly out to the warning track and center. Off the bat, I thought he had gotten it. And if the weather, if this was a couple days ago when it was still hot and muggy and the winds coming from the south, I think it would have been gone. And all of a sudden, because of the storm coming through, it's 75 degrees. The wind is blowing in from left field. It was very refreshing and enjoyable to be there, but hitters hate it. And I think that kept that ball in the park. So he could have actually hit two of them today. The one to center field was just an absolute blast, no doubt or about that one. He can hit for some power. You know, he's not a big guy, but we've seen him hit the gaps for doubles. Obviously, he has the ability to hit the ball out of the park. Singles, uh, you know, run the base as well. So far, so good. You keep riding this as long as you can. I don't know if anybody truly knows if he is the answer there or not. But under the circumstances, they're going to keep finding out. And at the end of all this, we'll have a better sense of if he may be the guy or not. Yeah, no reason not to keep having him out there, especially with Victor Robles at AAA now. Uh, we mentioned Alcides Escobar being back. Good to see that. He only ends up missing the one game. Probably helped to have the rain out on Wednesday. And Kbert Ruiz ends up being the Nats starting catcher and number six batter in all three games. It does end up being a lackluster first series for him with the Nats at the major league level. Of course, that doesn't mean anything. That's not indicative of anything. But Kbert did go 0 for 5 with two strikeouts on Thursday afternoon. He in the series goes 2 for 14 with two singles. We barely saw any of Riley Adams in the series. I, I know it's been pretty much said, hey, this is Kbert Ruiz's job to lose a starting catcher position. Do you anticipate that being the case no matter what? Or if Kbert, for whatever reason, struggles, do you think we might see some more of Riley Adams uh, over the final month of the season? Well, no, I think we are going to see Kbert Ruiz the vast majority of the time. But I also think we're going to see Riley Adams. You know, the rain out kind of allowed them to do this where Ruiz could catch all three games. But now you've got five games in four days against the Mets and no off days after that. So I would bet you know, certainly one of Saturday's games, we're going to see Adams and probably one of the other ones Sunday or Monday, I would guess we'll see him as well. So he's going to get his his time. I don't I'm not real worried about that. But no, I mean, Kaber is going to catch four or five games a week, I would think is the plan. Even if he struggles, they're going to want to stick with him. They need to see what he can do. And it feels like at the plate, these aren't bad at bats. You know, he's not looking lost up there. He's just kind of getting under him. He's popping up a lot. And you wonder if it just takes a little time to sort of level that out. He starts squaring these up. I think they're going to go far. In the ninth inning, the game on the line, he actually hit one to the warning track and just kind of got under it a little bit. I don't think he missed that one by much. So I want to see some more here because I do feel like I'm not just trying to be overly optimistic, glass half full here, but I feel like there's a breakout coming. He's not swinging at bad pitches. He's not tapping little rollers on the infield. Like he's getting under it a little bit. And I think given a little more time, those are going to start turning into hits here soon. Yeah, I also wonder too if, hey, he's your everyday catcher now. He's learning pitchers. He's having to remember game plans, calling games, learning how to call these pitchers. There's a lot that he's having to deal with. So maybe the offense suffers for a little while because of that. And then once he's more comfortable with the other stuff, the offense picks up. We shall see. 
Well, speaking of catchers, uh, we should note this. On Wednesday, it finally happened. The Nats reinstated catcher Alex Avila from the 10-day injured list. So it ends up being a two-month stay for Alex Avila on the 10-day IL. He was placed on that on July 3rd, retroactive to July 2nd. He isn't activated until September 1st. I wonder if he maybe could have been activated on August 1st, and the Nats just chose not to do so. But the bilateral calf strains, which were suffered with him serving as the Nats starting second baseman in a 6-2 loss to the Dodgers on July 1st. So rosters have expanded. It's only up to 28 as opposed to 26. You're not up to like 40 now in terms of active guys for a given game. I don't know. We're not going to see Alex Avila play the rest of the year, or do you think there's a chance that we do see him play? I think it'll be very little. Yeah, we're not going to see a lot of him, but I think they figure it's worth it to have him here to mentor the young catchers. And you mentioned Riley Adams before. I think this is where it's important. It may not sound like much. You might roll your eyes at it. But if you have Avila on your roster, it allows you to pinch hit Adams or maybe even play him at first base at some point without burning up all your catchers. You'd still have somebody in case of emergency. And at this point, I think it's okay to do that. I don't think it's the end of the world. Look, I know there was only two call-ups this year instead of the traditional, you know, 10, 15 that you used to be able to do to get up to 40. But what we have to remember is most of the guys the Nats would have considered calling up in September are already here. They were already part of the 26. There aren't a whole lot of young guys knocking on the door that they need to get a look at. So I don't think it's the end of the world to use one of their spots right now on a veteran third catcher. What I'll also say is, unlike previous years, the AAA season will run all the way to October 3rd. So what that means is these aren't the only call-ups. They can move guys up and down throughout the month. And I think we will see that. So just because you're not here now doesn't mean we won't see you again before the month is over. Well, speaking of seeing someone or some team again and again and again and again, next up for the Nats, five games in four days against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Game one Friday night, games two and three are via a doubleheader Saturday afternoon and evening, 105 and 605. Game four, Sunday afternoon. Game five, Monday afternoon. The Mets are a mess in basically every possible way right now. All kinds of off-the-field controversy, including the acting general manager getting caught in a DUI situation. You, of course, had recently the Javier Baez-Francisco Lindor situation with the thumbs-down stuff, which those guys have since apologized for. Oh, by the way, it is the Mets who ended up claiming Brad Hand off waivers. So we might see Brad Hand back at Nationals Park over these next few days. But uh, if you're not already sick and tired of seeing the Mets, you're probably going to be sick and tired of seeing the Mets come the end of Labor Day weekend. This is going to be a lot of Nats and Mets. <laughs> and and now remember, the reason for this was the season opening series that was wiped out because of the COVID outbreak. This is finally the last of those being made up. It was already a four-game holiday weekend wraparound series, and then they had to add one more as the makeup for one of the lost games early on. So it's going to be a lot. Um, the Mets, as we said, are a mess, but right now it almost feels like if there's any team that a team that's in bad shape wants to face, it's the Nats. They're kind of helping keep the Phillies and the Mets in this race for what otherwise you would think the Braves should run away with it, and they're not. And the Nats are playing a big part in that. And how about this? Brad Hand ends up coming back to Nats Park twice before anybody else they traded away comes back once. We haven't seen Max Scherzer. We haven't seen Trey Turner. We haven't seen Kyle Schwarber, although we will see Schwarber the last series of the year when they face the Red Sox. We haven't seen Hudson, Gomes, and uh, Harrison. I mean, none of these guys have come back. And now Brad Hand is coming back for the second time already with his second different team. 
Yeah, you mentioned the Nats kind of uh, being in a rut right now. The losses are really starting to pile up here for the Nationals. They have lost five consecutive games. They're now 22 games below 500. Again, we don't get caught up in that, but if you do, yes, it is bad right now. 55 and 77 on the season. One more item here, and I bring this up mainly because this made national news on Wednesday. So multiple reports that longtime Nats executive Bob Boone has informed the Nationals that he's resigning instead of complying with the team's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for all full-time staff. And we've also had reports of other Nats employees leaving the team due to not wanting to comply with this mandate. We talked about this recently, August 27th. The Nats, interestingly, did not announce this, only confirmed reporting of this, that the Nats had made getting vaccinated for COVID-19 mandatory for all full-time staff. Employees were notified of the policy on August 12th had had until two Thursdays ago, August 26, to provide proof of full vaccination, provide proof of first shot, or apply for an exemption. Only full-time staff members are subjected to this. This has nothing to do with players. You know, I guess when the Nats came up with this policy, they figured there might be some who didn't want to comply with the policy and thus would end up leaving the organization. Do you think it was in that avoidance of controversy that that explains why the Nats did not announce this, that the Nats kind of waited for the reporting of this to happen and then sort of reacted to the reporting? This did become a big deal on Wednesday. I was kind of surprised at how much attention this got. This was on the front page of ESPN.com, Bob Boone leaving the Nationals, whereas otherwise, you know, most people nationally wouldn't really care about Bob Boone with the Nats, all due respect to him. But what did you make of that aspect of it? Yeah, I think because they're one of only two teams in baseball that has, at least that we know of, that has the policy, them and the Astros. And this is the first case that's out there that anybody knows of, of club employee choosing not to take the vaccine and then ultimately losing their job because of it. And Bob Boone is a little bit of a name, you know, the Aaron Boone connection, obviously, former big league manager. I mean, a great catcher for a long time. So while for a lot of Nats fans, they may not think that much or, you know, not have heard that much about him. He's been here since 2005. He's been here since the beginning. He was a Jim Bowden hire as somebody that Jim knew from Cincinnati and one of only a handful that stuck around through a GM change, actually through an ownership change. Because remember, MLB still owned the team at that point. And obviously through a whole bunch of managerial changes. And he's had a variety of roles over the years. But ultimately, he was one of Mike Rizzo's just most trusted baseball people that he has. And Mike loves to have good, solid, experienced baseball people around him to help him in evaluating players. I mean, he could scout potential draft picks. He could work with minor leaguers. They even had him, ironically, during the playoffs in 2019, he was one of the guys scouting the Yankees in the ALCS in case they faced him in the World Series. So he was scouting his son's team and going out to dinner with him at night, I think afterwards, which I I was always like fascinated if that wound up being the matchup, what was that going to be like for the Boone family? So somebody who had a lot of influence around here, and it's unfortunate that that's the way this would end. Now, Bob is going to turn 74 in a couple months, so I don't know how much longer he planned to work anyways. Maybe he saw this as a reason, uh, you know, an opportunity to step away from this you know, maybe the whole idea of going through a rebuilding process wasn't the most inc- you know, exciting thing to him as well. You know, so it's unfortunate, but there are going to be more of these, I would imagine. Maybe not a name quite as big as that, but there probably will be more team employees who, for whatever reason, they choose not to take the vaccine. That's their right, but it's also the Nationals' right to issue the mandate. And I'm curious to see how many other teams do this, not just in baseball, but across sports and what the ramifications of that are. So I was thinking about this. What if someone like Mike Rizzo didn't want to comply 
with a mandate. Would the Nats part ways with Mike Rizzo over something like this? I tend to think there maybe wouldn't be the mandate if someone like Rizzo was against this. But, you know, it's one thing for Bob Boone to depart. But what if someone really high up, like what if Rizzo, what if Davey Martinez didn't want to get the COVID-19 vaccine and said, no, I'm not doing this. Would the Nats stick to their guns to that extent and part ways with someone that high profile in the organization? I think the key there, like you said, is I think they wouldn't have instituted the mandate without already knowing that those very important people had already been vaccinated. And, and in both cases, they have not just taken the vaccine, but spoke out like in support of it. Davy, especially very early on was, but Rizzo was as well. So I think your answer there is if they knew that those kind of prominent people who are so important in the organization, who obviously they have no interest in losing, if they were against it, you probably wouldn't have seen the mandate in the first place. Do you know, is the mandate more learners driven or Rizzo driven, or do we not know that? I think it's more learners in front office. I think the thing to remember here, although the baseball operations people are the names that we know and the ones that come out, it affects way more people who have nothing to do with baseball. This is the people who just work for the team in a variety of capacities. And, you know, people who ultimately need to be able to work in an office indoors all day, all year round, not just during baseball season, but in the off season as well. They all work in the office or traditionally have before the pandemic. So I think this is about that. I think it's from ownership and people on the business side and that as opposed to the baseball side. But obviously, you're not going to institute this to only affect half the organization. You're going to institute this as it affects everyone. But really, most of the baseball operations people don't work out of the office every day in the offseason. A lot of them go other places that they live in the offseason. So it really, I think, has much more to do with the rank and file people, the people who whose names we don't know, we hardly ever see, who just work for this team year in and year out. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. You tell us what you think. You can always tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to share your tales of October 2019, send us a voice memo, record yourself speaking into your smartphone, and then email the file to us. Again, the address, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You get yourself a NatsChatPodcast t-shirt. You can also get yourself a secret weapon t-shirt because the secret weapon is back, people. Back-to-back good starts. Off, of course, an appearance on the Nats Chat Podcast in the previous installment of the pod. You can visit natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with another voice memo, another tale of October 2019. And how about this one? Comes to us from Stephen Leonard in Paris, France. Hi, Al. Hi, Mark. This is Stephen coming to you from outside of Paris, France. First of all, I just want to say thank you guys for doing this podcast. It's uh, it's really been a silver lining over the last couple months. Um, you guys have shed some real positive light on the team and hopefully the direction that it's taking uh, to get back on track in the future. So I hope to be listening to you guys for many years to come, even if, Al, you did go to prep. Uh, my memories of the World Series run, I'd say when I have to start in 2012, my wife and my two sisters and I were at the at game five um, of the NLDS versus the Cardinals. We were probably in the second to last row, um, kind of behind home plate in the upper decks, watching as the game slipped away and we lost and it was devastating. And we were walking out, walking down those ramps that go from the upper deck to the lower deck. And my sister, one of my sisters was just bawling because she was so upset and and distraught and I said to her remember this feeling because when we win it's going to be so much better 
And uh, there, there, you know, a few years later, 2019, I go to the wild card game with my son, who's at the time 10 years old, um, and got to see Soto's hit and cheer on the team and just, you know, have that cathartic moment where we, okay, we won something. We won a game. We won something in the playoffs. And a few days later, I got to go back uh, to Nats Park for game four of the um, NLCS and see the Nationals against the Cardinals and watching it right next to that same sister who was crying seven years earlier. And there were tears again that night. But these were tears of joy because our team had finally made it to the World Series. I didn't get to go to any of the World Series games um, with a lot of my price range, but uh, got to watch those games with um, with my wife and with my 10-year-old son. And uh, just what a memory. It was my daughter, my, my uh, at the time, six-year-old daughter's um, birthday, the day of the parade. And uh, she's still not happy that we celebrated her birthday by going to a baseball parade. But um, still, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience, that whole run. And uh, that's my uh, that's my um, story from 2019. Uh, now I'm living in France, listening to and watching from afar when I can. And I'm waiting for the next big run. Thanks again, guys. Go Nats. Nationals fans, it's time to welcome to the stage your 2019 world champions right now. Make some noise. Let's show them what DC sounds like. Every one of you in this crowd is a World Series champion Nationals baseball fan. Congratulations. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.